A lot is at stake when we are misunderstood. A lot is at stake when we are misunderstood. In my heyday in France, I had about five years of my life while I was teaching French, and I would spend the entire summer in France. I'd get out of school, leave about the last day of June. I wouldn't come back till the 1st of September. And I just was love uh, being in the French culture, connected with many relationships there. And one particular summer, the summer of 2005, was especially gratifying to me. I had really been taken in by a family that also had a son and a daughter. Um, I was single at the time, uh, but this family was just a very fun family. They're the kind of couple who you know, they're musical, and so they actually made it almost all the way to the European version of American Idol, and just around them, there was always just party, and so just being able to travel with them this one summer, up and down, or I should rather say across the south of France from east to west, it was just a lot of joy. And so at one meal in particular, you know, full French meal, everyone's around the table, something, I wanted to express something, and the thing that I wanted to express was how much I enjoyed the saints of France. I realized that the believers of France were a very special people. But what I'd forgotten was that there's a homophone, you know, a word that sounds the same, but is spelled differently. And the word that sounds the same is the word for bosom in French. <laughs> and so here I was, full of this incredible emotion, just wanting to appreciate all these beautiful believers around the table. And I just said, I just love the saints of France. Total silence. <laughs> Women start to turn red. And then they all bust out laughing as I just proclaimed my love for all the bosoms of France. There's a lot at stake when you're misunderstood, no? And of course, those are comical, but the misunderstandings that are harder or more hurtful, they, they can be difficult. You know, perhaps it's your boss who, because you didn't reach the bottom line, they weren't able to see your heart, which is your great effort. You felt misunderstood. Maybe it's in a friendship where because you couldn't respond as quickly as he or she would have liked, they took it as rejection, and that wasn't your intent at all. You were just misunderstood by your communication or by your lack of communication. Of course, this goes on every day in our lives, doesn't it? Or between a spouse. You know, spouses, the great challenge for spouses is to not assume the worst about the other's motives, but to believe the best for the other's motives. So there's a lot at stake when it comes to being misunderstood. And the thing is, if we misunderstand God, we risk missing His goodness. If we misunderstand God, we risk missing His goodness. God is good, but He's often misunderstood. God is so good, but He is so often misunderstood. And that's exactly the situation we come into in this reading about the Good Shepherd. A driving question I had as I read this account, if you noticed when Caleb read, how does it end? Let's actually start at the end, and if we could, look at verses 19 and 21. After Jesus shares his little discourse on the Good Shepherd, he says this. He says, sorry, he does it. John, the the gospel writer, says, there was again, this is verse 19, a division among the Jews. That means the Jewish religious leaders. There was a um, division among them. Many of them said, Jesus has a demon. He's insane, right? This guy's a fruitcake. Why listen to him? But others said, these are not the words of one who's oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open 
the eyes of the blind. In other words, we have to pay attention as good readers of the Bible and say, hey, there's context here. And the context here from John 9 is that Jesus just healed a blind man and it really ruffled a lot of the Jewish leaders' feathers. So let's kind of look at what happened in John 9. And as we're trying to see, how is it that we sometimes misunderstand God and his goodness, uh, what we can learn from this? So John 9 opens, and I'll just review some of this for us. John 9's open with that question of all questions. The disciples of Jesus are asking, why is this man blind? They found a man who was blind. And in the theology of the day, they said, was it him or his parents who sinned? Because obviously sin has to be behind this. Jesus' response, it's not that either of them sinned, but so God can display his glory today. Jesus proceeds to spit into the ground, make some mud out of his saliva and the dirt, puts it on this man's eyes and says, go wash in a pool called Siloam, which means scent. And he goes and he returns seeing. Now what's interesting about what happens now in John 9 is, we'll see all the characters except for Jesus, turn out to be fairly self-preserving, fairly self-protective people. Because here this miracle comes, this act of God's unbelievable goodness, and the Pharisees, they're just interested in protecting themselves, right? They're just interested in protecting their, their religious situation. So they question the blind man. How could this happen? How could a sinner do that? He did it on the Sabbath, right? So they're just preserving themselves. The Pharisees, the Jews, they call in the parents of the blind man to say, hey, is this really your son? Was he really blind at birth? What do you have to say for this? And it says in John 9, because of fear of the Jews, they didn't want to respond. You know, they said, ask him. You know, ask him. You know, we don't want to get kicked out of the synagogue here. You just ask him. Do you feel it? Self-preservation, self-protection, fear. And it can be argued even the man who was formerly blind had a little bit of that. The scriptures indicate that at this time, he just thought that Jesus was a prophet. He hadn't yet met Jesus. It doesn't happen until the end of the chapter. I mean, meet him in a salvation sense. But he, even as, as the uh, Pharisees are pressing in a second time with him, you know, what do you say for yourself? How did this happen? How could this be? He said, what, do you guys want to be his disciples? I mean, he's kind of mouthing off a little bit to the, to the authorities there. And they, they respond with some pretty harsh words. In fact, they respond by casting him out of the synagogue. All of them, self-preservation, self-protection. But the end of chapter 9 sees Jesus and the blind man, now that he's been kicked out of the synagogue, and not just kicked out like, leave today, cast out of the fellowship for good. And Jesus comes to him and he says, do you believe in the Son of Man? And that's important, even that title, because the gospel writer, Matthew, Luke, they use that title a lot. But John doesn't use that title a lot. And I have a feeling that's important because here Jesus is identifying with the pain here, you know, the brokenness of being blind. And of course, in that culture, as a blind person, way on the margins, always begging, always uh, on, the, on the out. And Jesus says, do you believe in the Son of Man? He says, I do. You know, who is he? Jesus says, the one who's speaking to you is he. And the blind man worships him, says, I believe. And then... The conversation ends with the Pharisees somehow. This is all kind of around the temple area. Pharisees kind of edge up, and they're in earshot, and they hear Jesus say, I've come into the world for judgment, that those who see may not see, and that those who see may become blind. And the Pharisees asked, are we blind? Are we blind? 
And now we get into chapter 10. And Jesus answers that question about the Pharisees uh, being blind. And he says, I'm the door. Actually, he says, I have gone through the door. He's kind of saying, I'm the way, the truth, and life that Brian will preach on later this month. He's saying, I'm the door. I have gone through the door. And he says, I'm the shepherd. That's what Sean preached about last week, if you're with us. And now we get to the question of what kind of shepherd is Jesus? What are his motives? You know, what do we need to understand so we don't miss out on his goodness? God is good, but he's often misunderstood. So Jesus says, and now we'll take it from the beginning. John 10, verse 11, he says, I am the good shepherd. I am the good shepherd. Let's notice in contrast to the leaders of Israel who are just self-protective, self-preserving, and he's saying, I am good. And that word is actually a very rich word. It's not just like good, better, best. It's admirable. It's excellent. It's noble. It's beautiful. It's praiseworthy. It's all these things. Someone who's morally just so good. It's Jesus is a good shepherd. And there's echoes here. As soon as he said those words, when he says, I am a good shepherd, and the audience hears a lot of Jews and Jewish leaders immediately in their mind, they're probably going through their prophetic Rolodex, and they've got Ezekiel in their mind, and Ezekiel had a, has great chapters on uh, Israel's leaders being bad shepherds and the need for a good shepherd. Zechariah has some similar things about a good shepherd coming to lead God's people. So as soon as Jesus utters the words, I'm the good shepherd. That would register with them. There's some history back there, and God is showing up here. God is good. He's often misunderstood. And Jesus is going to describe his goodness now in three ways. Jesus will describe his goodness now in three ways. Let me continue, 11 and 12. Everyone with me? Okay. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life For the sheep, he who is a hired hand may not, excuse me, and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. Jump with me down to 17 and 18 because there's a similar thought. Says, for this reason, the father loves me because I lay my life down that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I've received from the Father. So the first way that God is really good, and it behooves us not to misunderstand him, is that he is willingly self-sacrificial. In total contrast to the religious leaders of the day, who are territorial, wanting to hold on to power, kicking people out who threaten them, Our God, our Jesus, is willingly, happily self-sacrificial. He is not a hired hand. I remember as a high school student, I had a job at an upscale nursing facility. An upscale, like, I remember one of the residents that was probably more well-known was Dole, like of the Dole Pineapple Empire. And in this upscale residential um, rehabilitation kind of nursing home facility, sorry if that wasn't clear, uh, we had a very nice dining room, you know, bow tie as a server, the whole nine. 
And um, <clears throat> uh, the restaurant was on the third floor with this huge atrium in the middle that looked down below to the entrance, you know, skylight. Just a great facility. So I served there. I was a waiter. And, you know, we were closing one night. And, you know, I'm 15 or 16 years old. I, I don't, I'm not, my character is not quite formed, <laughs> as maybe it is a little bit more now. And so I see this giant glob of coffee jello. Have you ever seen coffee jello? It's just, I don't know if it's just an older person thing, but every night, you know, we would pour all the coffee remains into a big pan, you know, and fridge it overnight. And then we have coffee jello the next day. Residents loved it. Anyways, so I've never seen it in any other restaurant in my entire life. I only seen it at this facility. So there's a giant glob of jello. I've got the vacuum cleaner because that's my task. And I just look at that thing and I go, yep, you're going in. You know, proceed to totally plug up this vacuum cleaner with a large amount of coffee jello. And I'm just a hired hand. So what I do in all my 16-year-old wisdom is, well, I say, forget that. I go over to the way other side of the restaurant, you know, across this atrium, and I start doing something else, like resetting the tables, right? Yeah. Five minutes later, no joke, I hear my boss, this little energetic blonde woman, She's got, I see her across the atrium, like the other side of the restaurant. She's got the vacuum cleaner upturned, and she says, who would be so stupid as to vacuum up this jello? Just kind of shrink down. I wish I could report to you that I confessed my sin. I did not. I just, I clocked out as soon as I could, okay? Hired hand, right? I don't give a rip about the vacuum, the cleanness of that floor, or anything else. Hopefully God has done a work in me since then. So I would care more about other people's stuff. Jesus would have taken the jello to the trash. I'll just say that. Okay? He would have not plugged up the vacuum cleaner. <clears throat> Jesus is good and he's willingly self-sacrificial. It has everything to do with this part of our, our calling. Haven for the broken. It comes from Isaiah 42, 1 to 4, and probably one of the most beautiful images in Scripture. It says of Jesus that a bruised reed he won't break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. Is that good? Is that good as in admirable, beautiful, noble, praiseworthy? He doesn't crush us when we're down. He does the opposite. He lifts us up. He is good. And note again that Jesus is not forced. You know, what makes him so good is the fact that he has full authority to not do it. He's not just a spiritual automaton. He's not a spiritual robot just destined by God to do this. But with this full human free will, he lays his life down. If you go to the Pentagon today, or actually one of several chapels in the United States, you will likely find a uh, stained glass window. It's got a picture of four chaplains on there. These four chaplains, this is appropriate, it's today Pearl Harbor Day, is that right? Okay, today's Pearl Harbor Day. This is in the Atlantic, though, not the Pacific. But in late January of 1943, uh, it was a cruise ship that the Army had taken over, and they were, we were sending 900 of our troops from New York to Greenland. But on February 3rd, on that journey, at about 12.55 a.m., that ship, as many U.S. ships did, got torpedoed by a U-boat. So you can imagine the chaos that ensued because the torpedo hit the electrical Uh, part of the ship, so it went dark immediately. So they were wounded, it was chaotic, the ship was going down. And one survivor, about a third of them survived, but one survivor with his life jacket on witnessed as flares were going up that as that ship was going down, kind of the last four people on there were four chaplains, a Methodist chaplain, a Roman Catholic priest, 
a Jewish rabbi and a Reformed Church of America minister. They had linked arms. They had taken off their life jackets. They had helped the wounded as much as they could. They got them to the lifeboats. And those four went down with the ship, each singing, worshiping, praying. What kind of love is that? What kind of goodness is that? That's goodness that only Yahweh, that's goodness that only Jesus can put in someone. A goodness that's often misunderstood. But man, that self-sacrificing goodness is so powerful when we see it in action. And in fact, it's this Jesus's, um, the opposite of being self-protective, the fact that he's self-giving, that's actually, just as a little maybe helpful hint or a helpful tool for you is, this is my number one weapon, so to speak, when it comes to evangelism, right? Because what's the number one thing that people say? They talk about the problem of evil. If God's real, if God's good, if God's this, why X, Y, Z? And I shared with you back in October, but I'll just hit it again. Kelsey and I had the privilege of, while we were in Michigan, getting to know a young man who was working at one of these like pumpkin harvest farms. And we quickly got to know from him that his friend, his high school friend, was dying of cancer. And so what I said to him was, because clearly he's asking the question, where are you, God? My friend is terminal. I said, you know what? I don't know why your friend has cancer. And the reason I said that to him was because I don't know why his friend has cancer. But I said, but the thing that I know is that our God, Jesus, he died on a cross. He gave of his own self. He experienced all the pain that humanity could muster in being nailed to the cross. And I know that he is a friend to your friend. That this Jesus that I know can be a friend to your friend. And that's where the conversation shifted. His heart melted. He got um, you know, a little misty. And just there was a shift. Something happened in the spirit world. A transaction had just happened. And he got soft. So Jesus... He's good. Of course, the world misunderstands it. We misunderstand it at times, but he's good because he's willingly self-sacrificial. That's what the world needs to know when it comes to the gospel. He's good, sometimes misunderstood, but he is willingly self-sacrificial. The second way that Jesus illustrates his goodness is in the following verses. Let's look at 14 and 15. I am the good shepherd. Good just want to say he's good, admirable, beautiful, noble, praiseworthy, excellent. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. And I lay my life down for the sheep. He's kind of hitting the first point back there. But let me read 14 and 15a again. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. God is good. He's often misunderstood, but God is intimate, right? God is intimate. In contrast to the Pharisees and religious leaders from chapter 9, where they were distant, more concerned about rules, right? They said, this, this guy who healed you, blind man, he can't, be, he can't be from God because he healed on the Sabbath, Right? That was, they're all, they all taken up by this issue. So in contrast to the distance and the human thinking of the Pharisees, we have a God who wants to be intimate with you. 
Let's break this down. It says, I know my sheep. Do you know that the Father knows you? Do you know that Jesus knows you and that he loves you? I have found in my growing up, and a lot of this is because of my uh, family of origin, perhaps not feeling superly bonded to my own father, I found myself through life in different situations where I really want to be known by the key leader. You know, I want to be known by whoever's in charge. I need to be known by them. So as a college student, Jimmy Seibert was my college pastor. Jimmy's the father of our movement of churches, our larger Antioch movement. And, you know, the, the ironic thing is I had one of the best disciplers discipling me, a guy named Kurt. But it's like that wasn't good enough for me. I needed Jimmy to know who I was, right? But what does this scripture say? It says that I know my sheep, and that is enough for each one of us. Jimmy, he's an anointed man, but he's just a man. How much more wonderful is it that I'm known by the king of the universe, by Jesus Christ, the Lord of lords, the one who fully knows me and still fully accepts me. That's awesome. He is intimate with me. He wants to know me. What is the first question that God ever posed to humankind? Do you remember it from Genesis 3? We blew it, and God's first question is, Where are you? God's first question to humanity is a relational question. It's not a discipline question or a, I got to hunt you down. I have a feeling that the God of the universe knew where Adam and Eve were in the garden. But his first question is, where are you? Because I want relationship with you. I want to know you. Psalm 139 says, O Lord, you have searched me and know me. You know when I sit down. And when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue. This is crazy, okay? You want to think crazy? God's crazy. (laughs) Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, you know it altogether. That can be a little intimidating. But here's the safety part. You hem me in behind and before. Here's God. You know, we're spouting off stupid things we shouldn't say. God. It's walking with us, trying to protect us. God's like the big bumper on both sides. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, right? This is kind of beyond our pay scale. It is high. I cannot attain it. So God knows you. And you don't have to be ashamed. Okay, he knows you. He knows how you're wired. He loves how you're wired. He's for you. He's not against you. Do you believe that? I think if we believed it, we'd act a little differently, honestly. I'm trying to believe this more and more by his grace, by his spirit. So he knows you. And then he says, and my own know me. In other words, we can know Jesus. He desires real relationship with us. A couple of thoughts on that. Do we not all crave intimacy? Regardless of your personality type, regardless of how well you think you do or do not connect with people, we are all craving for intimacy. And the great thing about Jesus is he's really the only one who can handle that insatiable craving. I don't care how tight you are with your group of friends or with your spouse even, but even your spouse can't quite give you everything you need as far as the desire for intimacies that you have because they're so beyond, they're not made to be filled by humans. They're made to be filled by God. Since we're in the Advent season, let's look at what the Magi say, right? The wise men come, Matthew 2.2 2 says they come, and what's their first question? Their first question is, where is Jesus? I wanna, we want to know this guy, right? 
We don't know the whole Zoroastrian thing that got them there, but for whatever reason, God got them there, and they said, where is he? I want to be with him. Is that your heart's cry? Where's Jesus today? I love that, Dash, you chose that song. In the morning, give me Jesus. When I'm alone, give me Jesus. Right? Is that our heart's cry, to know him? Only Jesus can really fulfill that deep need for intimacy. Our umbrella movement named Antioch Community Church or this larger movement that we're a part of. I love their tagline, their motto is a passion for Jesus and for his purposes on the earth. A passion for Jesus. Hey, show me your calendar, show me your checkbook, and I can tell you what your passions are. Or if we spend about a half an hour together and we just speak, I'll find out what your passions are because the things you're passionate about come off your lips. We can cultivate a passion for Jesus. And it's so worth it. We can know him. I'll tell you, in the eight, nine, ten weeks that Kelsey and I have been back here, the thing that I have been most thrilled about is a group that's been meeting at my house on Tuesday nights. I started doing the seeds for this group last spring. Obviously, we were delayed because of Kelsey and I not coming back till October. A, a discipleship group that I wanted to lead. And some of the entrance requirements for this D group were pretty high. They were, if you want to walk with me in this season, I need to know that you're going to multiply yourself. Like, you'll, we'll do our thing together, and then you guys need to do the same thing. You go and do likewise. You have to be willing to do that. But man, can I tell you what's been the most fun about this D group? It's been the aha moments when a few, in this case men, start to enjoy meeting with God every day. When they start to say, oh my gosh, like, I read my Bible, and I prayed today, and my day was awesome. I read my Bible, I spent time with the Lord, and I'm feeling intimate with Jesus. I honestly, I, I, <laughs> this is one of the reasons I'm here on the earth. If I can get more people, if, I, if that can be my legacy, just more people spending time with Jesus, I'll be a happy man because it's just so awesome to see the light bulbs go off and they say, I've been spending time with Jesus and it changes everything. So another question I would ask then is just how much of Jesus do you want to know? Right? If, if, there's, if we're not walking in intimacy with Jesus, I can tell us where the issue is, okay? And this isn't a legalism deal. It's not a, a law deal. It's just how much of Jesus do you want to know? Colossians 2.3 says that in Christ is hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And then James 4 says, draw near to God, and he'll draw near to you. There's an invitation from Jesus. He's saying, I know you. Do you want to know me? How much of God do you want to know? How much do you want? I think God is looking for people who will grab a hold of him and say, I just want to be with you. I want to know you. What happened to Enoch? Do you remember Enoch from the Old Testament? It says he walked with God. And what happened? He was just taken up. What a picture of intimacy with God. Just so with God. He just gets taken up. He passes right through death into heaven. Man, the Bible's full of that invitation. How much do we want to know God? And the thing is, that, frankly, also, there is more of God for those who obey. And again, I, I, this, sh- this can't come off as a works theology. I believe in Ephesians 2, for by grace we've been saved, through faith is not of ourselves, but that no one should boast. Of course, it's all free. But then there's Psalm 25, 14, which says, the friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him. Or a scripture that I've been praying since about our, I just have a visual of where we were physically. It has nothing to do necessarily with our marriage. But I remember around our second year, I started praying from Jeremiah 33.3. It says, call to me, 
and I will answer you and tell you great and unsearchable things you did not know. That excites me. I want to call God. I want to, I want to talk to him. I want you to tell me the things, God, that I need to know. But the whole context of that Jeremiah 33 is a context of repentance and healing. So how much of God do you want? The friendship of the Lord belongs with, to those who fear him. So the cry of my heart lately has been, God, increase the fear of the Lord. I'm, I'm sad where my disobedience just blocks fellowship. I know I'm saved. I know I belong. I know I'm going to walk out in all the great works you have for me. Not a works theology. But there's some truth here that says the friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him. God, give me more of the fear of the Lord. Or as we say to our kids, we're teaching our kids to obey quickly, cheerfully, and completely. I say, Lord, have mercy on me. Help me to obey you, Father, quickly, cheerfully, and completely, because I want friendship with you. I want intimacy with you. And then Jesus goes on to say, this is what's so cool. He says, I know them, they know me. Then he gives the example, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And this relationship between Father, Son, and frankly, Holy Spirit also, this relationship, there's been no better relationship in history as far as guys, if I can call them that, who retain their personality and their character and yet are in the deepest communion ever. In other words, the father is distinctly the father, the son and all of his attributes. And and Jesus, the son, is fully Jesus and all of his wonderful attributes. The Holy Spirit is totally Holy Spirit and all of his wonderful attributes. They're discreet. They're different. And yet they are in such a deep communion. So do you hear what Jesus is saying? He's saying, the same union that I have with the Father. He's not saying, it's just exclusive for us. Have a good time, humans. Good luck. See you in heaven, right? It's the opposite. He's saying, as me and the Father are one, same thing with us. We can walk in this oneness. You'll be fully who you are, right? So where the devil lies to you and says, if I surrender my life to Jesus more, he's going to take me over and it's going to be either boring, annoying, or too hard, or all those things that the devil says. Jesus is saying, Come, let's be intimate. You'll, you'll be more who you're meant to be as you're intimate with me. You'll blossom as fully Kevin, you know, fully Beth. You'll be fully Dimitri, fully. Just walk with me. So God is good. Are we hitting some places where we misunderstand him, right? We don't believe this all the time. God is good, but he's often misunderstood. And his goodness, the second part is that he's intimate. He's not distant. He is intimate. He's not distant. He wants to be intimate with you. Let's look at the third one. Uh, Verse 16. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. So God is good. He's good because he's willingly self-sacrificial. He's good because he is intimate. He's not a distant God. And this third thing, this one gets me as pumped as the second one and the first one. It's hard to decide which one's the best. They're all good. The third one is Jesus is on the best mission in the world. Okay? He's on the best mission in the world. I mean, Jesus is throwing the best party in the universe, and he's inviting you and me to be a part of it. Okay? Of course the context is. In other words, when you look at the scriptures, of course, is Jesus saying that, hey, it's not only Jews, but I'm going to open this thing up to the Gentiles. So all these Old Testament prophecies about God's salvation coming to the nations, the peoples, everyone, not just God's chosen people, 
the Israelites, but we're going to open this thing up to everybody. Of course, Jesus is referencing that. Of course. But I guess I want to say, man, that mission. I mean, do you hear his, do you hear his urgency? He says, uh, I must bring them also, right? And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there'll be one flock and one shepherd. I'm telling you, Jesus has got the best mission in all the world. If you're like me, when you're at either a party or a function or a conference or something, if I just get like the smallest inkling that this is going to waste my time or it's not well organized or it's just lame, I get restless. I say, this is lame. Can we do something else? You know, I'm telling you, Jesus's mission, his leadership, his organization of the church is so supreme and so wonderful. It's good. He's got the best mission going on. And I have to tell you also, there's many good things that can be done. But can I tell you what gets really fun is when you start to co-labor with Jesus on this mission. For example, it was very fun a couple of Friday nights ago when I picked up a few tickets to a BU hockey game. And I think the last time I was at a BU hockey game, it was lame. Okay? But I had faith that maybe the Terriers could provide an exciting game for us. They were playing Maine, and it was an exciting game. Jason and I went to a Friday night game. Uh, we got there. The Terriers were down 2 nothing. They didn't show up in the second period at all. It's like, are you guys on the ice? What's your problem? Third period, all of a sudden something happened. I think Coach said a few things. And they picked it up. They scored two goals. And so now it's 2-2. We go into overtime. And within two minutes, kind of there, there, BU has this new superstar, and he scored the game-winning goal. So from 2 nothing to 3-2, I mean, as far as an athletic contest goes, that was fun. Jason and I rejoiced. Didn't, did we not, Jason? We rejoiced. There we did. Okay. But you know what's fun, fun, fun? So that's fun. But let me tell you about fun. What is fun for me is that right now, and I just encourage this as a, as a way to live, but I've got someone older than me, I've got someone who's about my age. I've got someone younger than me who I am purposefully cultivating a relationship with because I just want the privilege of co-laboring with the Holy Spirit to see how God's going to invite them into the kingdom. So I pray for them. I'm deliberate with them. And because we're podcasting, I won't say much more, but I'm having so much fun. I am having so much fun at just seeing how God wants to reveal himself to these guys, right? God's doing the work, right? Jesus is drawing all men to himself, and I just have to get in line, hear what God's doing, do the next thing he tells me. You know, say this, invite him to this, do this. And just as a testimony, the other day, one of these guys just said to me, I've never had anyone listen to me like you just listened to me. He happens to be going through a very painful time in his life. I said, of course, like, this is God, you know, I just... Do that kind of thing. So he's tender to me. He's tender to God. He's in a hard spot. But I just love being alongside the Holy Spirit as the Holy Spirit is drawing this man to himself. There's no better mission. There is no better mission. And like Jesus says, because there's going to be one flock and one shepherd, there's an incredible work of unity to be done. Does anyone else here like the Olympics? I dig the Olympics because I like seeing all these nations get together. But can you imagine how glorious it's going to be when... It's the Jesus Olympics. I mean, when the nations take the stage and it's all for worship for Jesus and it's not just about, um, you know, who's got the best team doing this, that, or the other, which is fun. But I'm saying real fun is when our divided church, our divided body of Christ comes together with all the colors of the world, all the nations of the world, we worship in one voice. That's the mission I want to be a part of because it will happen. It's just who wants to come on board.
So I would just say, don't settle for an inferior mission. As you're wrestling through vocation, as you're wrestling through what God has called me to do and be, just don't settle for an inferior mission. So whatever you do, be given over in your heart, be given over in your finances, be given over in your prayers to the fact that Jesus is making everyone who will, whosoever will, be a part of his fold. And that's the best adventure that there is. It's why, I mean, have you heard it from Elizabeth? Elizabeth Gilman, who's in Bangalore. Brianna Iacoveta. Not everyone has to be an overseas missionary, but we all have to be a part of this mission. Amen? And they happen to be living it on the most adventurous side. So it's wonderful. God is good. He's often misunderstood. He is willingly sacrificial. He does not hold back. Okay? Some of you need to know that, especially if you've been through trauma, You need to know that Jesus is willingly sacrificial for you. God is good. He's often misunderstood. He is intimate. He is not distant. Some of you are believing a lie that, oh, that that level of intimacy is just for her. Or that level of intimacy, you know, those guys, how they pray or they do that, that's just for them. That's a lie from hell. Sure, your personality may be different, but you have the same capacity for intimacy with Jesus as any other saint in history. And... God is good, but he's often misunderstood. But his goodness is that he's inviting us into the best mission on planet Earth right now. And I have to tell you this, Church of North America, if we're bored with our king, if we're bored on this mission, the problem, guess where the problem lies? Okay? It's not condemnation, but God's, there's a party going on around Jesus. And it's up to us to respond to him to cultivate that passion, to follow him, to grab him by the hem of his garment and say, Jesus, I need your life. Do it on a daily basis. And frankly, if the church is bored with Jesus, it's going to show up in our fruitfulness, right? If the, if the church is not aware of this misunderstanding of his goodness, if we don't say, God, you are good, and I have misunderstood it, if we don't do that, we remain unfruitful. There's a key relationship between us apprehending the goodness of our shepherd, and then bearing fruit, which we've talked about also in John 15. Amen? Okay, I'm going to invite our band up. I'm going to invite you guys to all stand up, and I want us to process these three things together with the Holy Spirit who loves you. And it says that his loving kindness leads us to repentance. He's not a mean God. He's a happy God, and he wants the best for us. So as we just start to process this and go into response, we just want to ask Jesus, you know, which one of these areas of his goodness have you misunderstood? Which ones do you need a fresh revelation in? Okay, so you start asking God that question even now. Just ask him, Lord, which area of your good shepherding have I misunderstood? Or which one am I longing for better? And just ask him for that. Ask him for more understanding not in a mental ascent sort of way, but in a experiential way. So, Lord, I want to experience your good shepherding today. Is it that goodness related to his willing, self-sacrificial attitude towards you? Have you not believed that? Have you felt like um, he hasn't protected you? Hasn't been there? Again, especially if you have past trauma, this might be one that you need to focus on. That He laid down his life for you. Although it may feel like the wolf came and he wasn't there for you, the reality is Jesus is here for you now. 
Maybe it's in the area of good shepherding regarded, regarding his desire to be intimate with you. Maybe that's where you need to ask, Jesus, I want to be intimate with you. I haven't believed in your goodness. I've felt like it's been cold stone when I've tried to read the Bible, tried to pray. It feels like I'm talking to a brass heavens. Please release intimacy because you're such a good shepherd. Or maybe it's that last one. Maybe it's, God, I think I know what I want to do, or I like doing what I do. But Lord, if you have a Holy Spirit interruption for me regarding a very specific invitation to join the most exciting mission on the earth, Lord, let me know. And actually, to that note, I would highlight Mary during this season. All that Mary said when God came to her was, be it done according to your will when the angel came to Mary who would become the mother of Jesus. What a great posture for us right now. If you just say, Lord, you're scaring me. (laughs) Uh, You know, I don't understand even what you're inviting me to. But yes, I surrender to you. Maybe that's a prayer that you need to pray today. The more we understand, believe, and trust in the goodness of our shepherd, the more the world will see him more clearly and do the same. Our belief in the goodness of Jesus directly corresponds to our fruitfulness. So Lord, we pray, have mercy on us today. As we begin to worship you, we ask you to visit us in these three areas of your goodness. Illuminate our hearts to your true goodness, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen.